If you have a Bible, open it to Titus chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 9. Um, and what I'm going to do differently than I, than I normally do to, to make it regular from now on um, is when we begin, I, I'm going to begin by reading the, the text of what I'll be uh, unpacking for us out of the Bible. And the reason for that is that everything um, I do in my study is not to share with you some of my thoughts and ideas and then add some scripture to it, but to really go to the text and unpack that for us, that we would live more gospel-centered lives out of scripture, living and meditating and, and just taking in scripture. So um, out of that, um, I'm just going to read it for us. Uh, before we get started, and that will get us into our time together. So Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And so as we uh, go to unpack our our text this morning, really your uh, fill in the blanks, our sentence there is that elders are faithful men who model gospel-centered living to the church. And so in our text that we just read, um, Paul is reminding Titus why he was left on the island of Crete. In verse 5, he says that he's put him there to set into order the things that were lacking. There wasn't good godly leadership in the church yet. And he put him there to appoint those godly leaders, those elders, in every city. Now, there are some churches, there, there are all different kind of views of how eldership works, but really, I think leadership is absolutely important in this regard. And any group or organization even that is structured without leadership, I don't even know if you can call that structured, really find themselves in a different and a difficult place because if you don't have clear and defined leadership, then what you really have is kind of this constant handout of authority and influence to the most dominant person, okay? So that, that, and that means that can also change rapidly. So without good godly leadership, it's really just going to go to the dominant personality, the person who seems like they can kind of have it all together in the moment. But Paul really tells Titus, establish leaders, have leadership defined. But for us in the church today, there's all kinds of background and ideas and approaches and methodology and opinions around the concept of elders in the church. So for some of us, we grew up in churches where there really weren't elders, there were just deacons, and even that word for some, they're going, I don't even know what a deacon is, but there were just elders, in the de- or there were just deacons, no elders, and deacons kind of just functioned like elders, saying, no, we're not elders, but we function like elders, and that seemed a little confusing. And then you've got others who grew up with elders in the church, but it went really bad. They had elders in their church. It went really bad. They had, the elders had too much power. They abused the power, and they weren't necessarily the right men in the role. 
And, and then others still have, have no idea of the concept of elders. And so when they think of the term of an elder in the church, they're going, okay, how can a younger guy be an elder? When I think of elder, I think of an old man. And so there's further confusion around that. And then for others, they just kind of get this idea that it's this off in the distant kind of Jedi council, like we make decisions, you do what we say kind of thing. And so there's all of these different ideas based on our own background, especially in the Western church. But the reality, as we see in scripture, is that the role of an elder is by design, not gifting. So in Scripture, we see that elders are men. They're, they're not women. There are no female elders in Scripture. And, and, and that has nothing to do with gifts and abilities. It has everything to do with God's plan and His design for flourishing both the church and the home. Okay, So according to the Word of God, elders in the church are men, but they're the type of men that women flourish under. And so if women aren't flourishing under them, they're the wrong men. So are, are you tracking with, we, with me around that? They're, it's by design, not by gifting. So it has nothing to do with the, the gift set of the individual. Because I've met plenty of women that are smarter than I am, more gifted than I am, and better communicators than I am. And on and on, I could go in that. But it has nothing to do with giftedness. It has to do with design laid out by God that Paul is communicating. So Paul's argument here is not just cultural to the church in Crete on the island of Crete. It goes back to creation, that God has a design for this, for the role and the office of an elder. And so in Christ the King, we have a, a structure of this that's a little bit unique. In our network, the way it works is that over the, the network, we have an elder board. We have an elder board that oversees the network as a whole, and then, and then over sections, we have kind of regional area pastors that would help the local pastor oversee uh, their areas. And then we have the local pastor like myself leading congregation, shepherding the congregation. And then in the local church, what you have along with the local pastor is the local advisory council. And that local advisory council really is kind of like that eldership. And, And because Paul in this section and also in 1 Timothy 3 where he gives these instructions. It's not singular. The word elder there is plural. And so he's giving this instruction. And so along with having a local pastor for a congregation, in a congregation, you also have the local advisory council. And here for us, we have that made up of of three men currently, that, that it's Frank Cook, Jeremiah Knudsen, and Harry Ellingson. Now, here's the thing I want you to understand that is, was really key for me in, when I brought these guys together was that I was intentional that it was no guys under 30. Because when you get a bunch of young guys around saying, here's how we should lead older men, that goes bad, okay? And we'll talk about that a little bit later in chapter two. But really, for me, I wanted to grab guys that, that were older than myself, had walked through some life, And and although we don't call these men elders, the expectations I have laid before them and the qualifications I have looked for comes out of this biblical text. I want you to understand that. So in fact, if you look at the document that these men signed and, uh, and their wives had to sign, I'll share that a little bit later, then you will see the characteristic qualifications that are out of Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3. And that document um, is available on our website and uh, um, 
maybe it's because I'm just young and dumb and zealous or whatever it is, but I, I, we carry one of the most rigorous uh, advisory council documentation in our network. Um, all the other guys are just like, man, you're going five pages on these guys, those poor men. And, and I just believe that's a, that's a really important office to carry. And, and so we have a very lengthy documentation on that. And so you can find that on our website. But what Paul is instructing to Titus is to find faithful men, that elders are faithful men. And not only faithful, but they're faithful men that sacrifice. That the type of man who makes a good elder is the man who has answered the call to come and die, to give himself to the church for the growing and the maturing of the people of God for the glory of God. And so the call doesn't have anything to do with power. And the call doesn't have anything to do with authority. But is authority granted? Yes. Yes, authority is granted to the elders because they're the type of men who love the local church and have experienced the grace and mercy of God. And so they're empowered to lead out of those truths. And that really causes them then to respond in a way of saying, listen, I'll die for these people. I'm going to die to myself for these people. I will sacrifice for these people. I'll give myself, my time, my resources to these people. I'll lay down my preferences to this group of people. And these are things I've seen in our own council. These are things that I've seen these men be committed to, to die to themselves for the sake of God's church. And because being faithful men is defined by those that are loyal and consistent and steadfast. And so these men who make up our advisory council show all of these attributes of being faithful men. And this is the faithfulness Paul was telling Titus to look, to look out for. And this was also what Paul had modeled to the surrounding churches, that he was desiring to be faithful and sacrificial for their sake. And in fact, we see this in Philippians chapter 1, in verse 23 and 24. Paul tells the church, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to, to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Is more necessary on your account. And so Paul continues to tell Titus, listen, to establish faithful men to be elders, and specifically not just faithful, but also those who model gospel-centered living. Those who would model a gospel-centered life. And what that means is that the gospel of Jesus Christ invades every area of their lives. So as, as Paul tells Titus to establish these elders in these few short verses that we read between verse 5 and 9, Paul gives us 11 must-bes, 11 statements, and five must-not-be statements that really either align, the must-bes are, are that they would align with gospel-centered living, and the must-not-be is so that they wouldn't be uh, ruined and, and not able to walk in Christ-centered living. And so I'm just going to go over these for us in our time. That, that first, Paul says, he must be above reproach. That this simply means what it, what it says. That there is no glaring signs of sin and dysfunction. And, and let me be clear, there, there's no perfect man, okay? If, if the leadership of the church is defined by perfect men, let's shut the doors and leave. Because uh, you and I are not those men 
but we, we are faithful men. We can be faithful men. So, so Paul says he must be above reproach, not perfect, but that there is no glaring sign of sin and dysfunction in his life that would disqualify him. So he tells him to be above reproach. And then also he tells him that he needs to be the husband of one wife. And this phrase, husband of one wife, is translated as one woman man. Now, let, let me just say this. Throughout this list, uh, what, what happens in, in the church is there's a lot of argument, disagreement, and different views on how this is all translated. And, and it tends to be more personally translated than biblically translated. But here, here's what I'll tell you as Paul says this in the original, that it's one woman man. And so I don't believe that, that a man, if he's divorced or, or, is, or his wife has died, uh, causes him to be disqualified. But you have to do a lot of work around that. You have to do extensive work around that. You need to sit with that man. You need, to, you need to have conversations with that man. You need to sit with that woman. You need to talk through that. Because this type of man that Paul's talking about it is a one-woman man. He's for that one woman. He's with that one woman. He's a one-woman man. He's not marked by fantasies around other women. He's not marked by flirtation. He's not marked by these things. So if he goes out with his wife and they're sitting in a restaurant, he's not being flirtatious with other women, okay? He's a one-woman kind of man. Then also, Paul says, he must have children that are believers. Now here's where the, 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 bait even, the debate kind of, uh, kind of goes on more extensively. Because there's two groups that, that one would say a, a leader, an elder, must have faithful, well-behaved, obedient children. And, and the other says, or, or it's that children who are believers. And, and, and I would say, yes, and. Um, I, I agree with that, that, that actually the term believer in verse 6 is also translated in the original Greek as faithful. So if you go read the, the New King James Version, it will tell you that you need to have children. He needs to have children that are faithful. So faithful and believing, but not trying to disconnect one of saying, no, I don't need believing kids. I just need faithful kids. I would say yes and. So either way you look at that, here's the truth of it. The family is the proving ground for leadership in the church. The family should be proving ground for leadership in the church. So what that means for me and also our advisory council to you is that my first ministry, our first ministry is to our family. My first ministry is to my family. And Brian Chappell says this wonderfully in his book, To Guard the Deposit, when he's talking about eldership and deaconship. When it applies to the instruction of children in the home, he says, we are not necessarily looking at the beliefs and actions of one child, but at the character of the family as a whole. Our assessment is to be based on observations of children's conduct and convictions made over time, not on isolated statements or actions. So while, while under your care, children are to be faithful. And so what that means, fathers, is that a godly leader, a godly father is really going to do what Ever is necessary in terms of time and attention to nurture his child in the training and instruction of the Lord. In the training and instruction of the Lord. Just as Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up a child in the way that he should go, that he would not depart from it. And then also Paul says, 
then he must be God's steward. And he, he makes a connection here and he puts the two together that he must be God's steward above reproach. So he must be a steward of God's resources and God's mission that's above reproach in that. So Paul connects the two that it's the selfless servant. And Paul would say it this way to the church in Corinth when talking about the apostleship of him and the other apostles. In 1 Corinthians 4.1, he says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. And then also he says that an elder must be hospitable. And hospitable really means hospitality there in, in the Bible really means that it's, a love, it's someone who's a lover of strangers. So it means he loves lost people and he loves to minister to people. Now, let, let me just say that I understand in our culture, Mar, Martha Stewart has just kind of hijacked the word hospitality. So what Paul's not saying is this man must be able to decorate his home well, okay? That's not what Paul's referencing in this idea that he must be in the fine arts of decor, okay? What he's saying is that this kind of man positions himself in such a way of saying, I have a genuine concern for your soul. And I'm going to get around you and I'm going to show that to you. I'm going to spend time with you. I want to minister to you to show you hospitality. And then also Paul says he must be a lover of good. And a lover of good is obviously the the opposite of a lover of evil and hate. But a lover of good specifically is someone who rejoices in good. That when they see good happening around them, they praise God for it, and they move to be active in it. And then also, seventh thing that Paul says is that an elder must be self-controlled. So what that means is that he's not a glutton, but he likes good food. He's not a drunkard, but he likes good beer. He works out, but he hasn't freaked out and made his whole life around, I've got to be in the gym every moment of my life. He's not controlled by these things His appetites and his desires don't rule him. It's his love for the Lord that rules him and his pursuit of the Lord that rules him. So it's not his his other practices or, or his other preferences. It's the love and the pursuit of the Lord that controls him. And then also Paul says he must be upright. And one who is upright is defined by being unchanging in standards, having correctness, genuineness, and is honest. He must be these things. And then also Paul says he must be holy. That the, for the elder, he is no stranger to his own sanctification. That they are not perfect, but they are a model to the church. What it means to be separated from the world and set apart for God. And then also, Paul says that he must be disciplined. He must be disciplined. And this one carries similarities to being self-controlled, but the big difference here is consistency. Think of it this way, of a disciplined runner who is constant in getting on the track, has dedicated their life to faithfully running a race, continually getting on the track day after day. But as a rookie gets on the track... They have not yet built up the discipline to do the hard work. They have not yet been disciplined in saying, I just don't want to run, but I, I've got to run. 
They're, they're a rookie in that. And so what Paul says is he, he needs to be someone who's disciplined. And, and I believe that's why it's important to Paul, as he even states further in 1 Timothy 3, that he should not be a new believer. Because if you get a new believer trying to lead other believers, he, he's going to be behind in that race, in that running. And then finally, Paul says he must hold firm to the truth, which is the gospel. He must hold firm to the truth to instruct, and this is what Paul says, to instruct in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Now, here's, here's the interesting thing of, of our culture and our understanding of, of Scripture is that in, in the American church, the word rebuke is really kind of a dirty word. There's a lot of these that we find in Scripture that are important, beautiful, truthful words, and we just kind of view that and be like, that's dirty. Is there a different translation? But the reality is, is that elders are those who step into conflict. It's those who address the issue. And it's not those who, who like conflict, but it's those who lean into conflict. Because you can really get jacked up in church if you've got elders that love conflict. That's a dangerous, messy group of elders. Because if your elders love conflict, that's a bad thing. But also, the other piece is if they're so gentle and so timid and refuse to get into conflict, then that's a really bad thing for the church as well. Because then you have a group of men that are just kind of walking around trying to please everyone. And that's not the role of an elder. So what you need are men who actually don't like conflict, but aren't afraid to get into it if they have to. And so what that means is they don't want to go to war, but they will if they have to. They don't want to go to war, but they will if they have to. And so Paul gives Titus these 11 statements saying they must have these attributes. They must have these qualities. But here's what they must not have. Here's the statements Paul gives. He says they must not be arrogant. That the arrogant man is the one who views himself in an exaggerated way. And, and, and I would almost say of, of utmost importance. That, that it's where he believes his role and his place in the church is of the greatest importance there. And, and, and what I would say of experiencing around those that are arrogant, although you may not be able to see physically that's an arrogant person, I think sometimes you can, but when you can't, the closer you get to them, one of the things that, that, that comes out, it seems, is that they're just, they, they, they just spiritually reek. That, that everything that comes out of their mouth, what I mean by that is not some mystical thing, like, oh man, there's this cloud around them, but, but almost this sense of like when you step into a kitchen with rotten meat on the table, going, the closer I get, the more that stinks, the more that's foul and not good for consumption. The, the more you get around an arrogant man, the more you see, no, 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 nothing good is coming out of that. He, he's too puffed up in himself. And then also Paul says, that he must not be quick-tempered. And I think two of the most dominant features, and, and this is not how Paul unpacks this, but he, here's, my, here's my own personal conviction and, and experience in this. I, I believe that the two dominant features of a quick-tempered man are pride and zealousness for the wrong things. Pride and zealousness for the wrong things. And then also, Paul says he must not be a drunkard. And I think in some ways, this kind of seems like a no-brainer, but, but apparently it needed to be said. Because remember, when Paul instructs Titus, he's reminding them of one of the Cretans' own prophets who said they're, they're liars, they're drunkards, and they're evil beasts. And so Paul's saying, that's not going to work. 
that they can't be addicted to alcohol. And, and, and what that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that a brother can't enjoy a good beer. But what it means is that it, it can't be his, his something that I, I have to have. He cannot be controlled by that. It can't be his every night routine. It can't be his nightcap. Okay, I've, I've got to have this in order to. No, the, the only answer of that should be that I've got to have Christ in order to. And so it, he can't be controlled by it. And I think the placement of drunkenness that Paul instructs here is interesting, and I think it's important, because he first says that they, they must not be quick-tempered, they must not be a drunkard, and then they must not be violent. I think some of, some of the people that I've encountered, men who are drunkards, uh, you see a danger around the quick-temperedness and the violence. And when it comes to violence, an elder's job is to protect and to serve the church. And so nothing would be more harmful and hurtful than to have someone who is aggressive and violent towards others. That, that becomes harmful and, and counter to the heart of God. And, and then also, Paul says, he must not be greedy for gain. And what this means is that he does not specifically try to make things work out for his own regard or his own way. Because remember, the call isn't about power and it isn't about authority. It's about sacrificial service to the church. And so as Paul continues to instruct Titus, he's telling him, he's telling him listen, establish faithful men who will model gospel-centered living to the church. That the role of an elder, or in our case, a council member, is to care for the people of God. To care for the people of God. And this is what the Bible would call shepherding. And let me just tell you this, because I think there's, there's often times where uh, things go on around us, good things, sometimes bad things, but also good things that we're not aware of. Then we find out and, and we're like, oh, that's really great to know. I wish I had known that about that situation or that person. And so I want, I want to share with you so you understand that our council is not just a group of men who I, I call on the phone and say, got a problem, come on down, but men that I meet with regularly. And uh, as we meet once a month, we pray and we laugh and we plan and then we pray some more. And in that time, it, it, there are concerns shared and questions that are brought and discussed, not only from themselves, but from some of you. Concerns that, that are shared with them and, and then brought to me and brought to that group and we talk through some of those things. And so what I want you to understand is what I try to do is to be very intentional and thoughtful about who our councilmen are. When, when I first got here and I was, I was told that it'd be wise to establish a council in full agreement of that, um, I really prayed long and hard about that. And, and I just want it to be really clear. I would not easily give that title to one of you men without a lot of prayer, a lot of discernment, and a lot of time with both you and your wife. Because I believe that role is critical. I believe that role is important. And in fact, in order to be a council member, our current council members' wives had to sign an agreement for their husbands to be in the role. So at the very last page of that document, that five-page document that they sign, their wives have to sign it as well. And let me just be clear, it's not so that we can put the wives to work. 
okay? It's not so that I can have one over them like, hey, well, you signed here, so you have to do this. It's not for that purpose, but so that it's clear and it's communicated to both of them the role that the man would play as an elder in the church. So I want you to understand, I value our counsel very greatly. Because I think there's something incredible about surrounding yourself with guys that are older than you, guys that are smarter than you, and think very differently than you. And, and all of our councilmen were in service last, so I couldn't d- uh, tease them or, or, or pick on them or, or mention them as much. But really, uh, you know, where we, where we have similarities and, and, and certain life stories that align, they are different. And they have different backgrounds, different stories, different families. And there's value to that. When Paul tells Titus to establish them, he doesn't say get, get the good old boys club together so you can make decisions on your own and tell everyone to follow after you. He says die to yourself so that you can model to the church what faithful gospel-centered living looks like. So w- when I say I value our counsel, I mean that. And, and just, to, just to tell you how much I mean that, um, last year when... We, uh, when I was in conversation with the leadership of uh, the church that owns this building that we lease from, um, with keys in my pocket, I walked through this building with our council, asking them to pray with me. We prayed through the space. We, we discussed. And I made a commitment, not because I was told to, because one of the things in Christ the King is that by being a locally governed church, we're, we're what's called pastor-led. And so I don't have an elder board that, that votes, and I got to bring to them what paint should we use in this commons area. And they, then they vote on it, and we go from there, which is really wonderful. But I do lean on them, not for a vote, but for their discernment and their wisdom. And so I made a commitment that was really difficult to make, um, that I promised myself that if they did not believe this was for the health of the church, we would not move away from set up, tear down, and to this building. And I, I mean, like I said, with keys in my pocket, that's like sending a 10-year-old into Toys R Us with $100 in his pocket and say, by the way, don't spend any of that, okay? And, and so we walked through the building. I'm trying to contain my excitement, my eagerness. What do you think? Okay, I'll give you time, but what do you think? And, but making a promise, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to submit myself to this leadership that I really believe is godly. I'm going to submit myself, although no one has called me to do that, and I could have signed on the dotted line with checks and balances. I could have signed and said, hey, we're here. I waited for the council. And that was difficult, but important. So I want you to understand I value this council that helps govern this church. And so let me tell you this, to the men who want to lead, and I'm not just saying like, oh, I want to be on the council, but, but to lead in this church, if you want to be that let me just remind you something. That begins in your home. That begins in your home because the family is the proving ground for leadership in the church. The family is the proving ground for leadership in the church. And one of the things I have learned from my wife, not my own discernment or, or cleverness, is that when we, whenever we visit a church or, or meet with couples, my, my wife doesn't look at the pastor. How clever does he communicate? How, how well does he lead his staff? How's his relationship with his wife? And I've learned that. And I believe that's of utmost importance. And so, men, if you want to lead in this church, go lead in your homes. Learn to do that well. Not perfectly, but faithfully. Because I believe the family is the proving ground for leadership in the church. Let's pray.